Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome into the eighth episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. Glad that you found us. I'm Ethan Skolnick, longtime sports writer and commentator in South Florida, along with my friend here, Chris Whittingham. We do a radio show together, and now we do this podcast, which you can find in a variety of places, including Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. We'll have more information for about that and where to find us at the end of the show. Uh, we're doing this on a Monday. This is the day after the Super Bowl, the day after the New England Patriots lost to the Philadelphia Eagles, delivering the first Super Bowl to the Eagles. But we wanted to do today is wanted to touch on something beyond just South Florida, although we will touch on the Dolphins here a little bit over the course of the podcast. But we wanted to hit on the five reasons that we learned something during this particular NFL season. And Chris and I are going to switch off on these, and I will let you start with your first reason. So I think the Super Bowl is kind of instructive here, and in terms of the local angle, we can start here. How to beat the Patriots, because the Dolphins actually did that this year, and they're actually pretty good at doing it at home, 9-7 and seven in the Brady-Belichick era. But I think really taking yesterday the Super Bowl as kind of the chief example here. I think you saw the Patriots' best shot for a team to have more than 600 yards of offense, for a team to punt zero times and lose with Tom Brady at quarterback was absolutely astounding. And I think we saw some of the makings, right? So I think a lot of people talk about the pass rush with four, but the Eagles didn't really do that very much yesterday. They, did, they didn't really defensively lock down the New England Patriots. They got a couple of stops via turnover on downs and forcing field goals that ended up being missed. But they didn't really do too much on the defensive point of view. On the offensive point of view, having basically every big play converted. So you had a fourth down and one in the final six minutes of the game that Nick Foles converted. You had any number of third downs, any number of big catches. You basically have no margin for error and every big play you have to make because you saw the way that champions behave when they're behind and desperate. New England was unstoppable in the second half and the Eagles made every play that they needed to make, and that's basically the margin fair you have to win the Super Bowl. You see what happens with Seattle, Atlanta, frankly, as well. You have to make every play available, and the Eagles went and did it. I think if you look at the Patriots' uh, Super Bowls and you see that basically all of them have been one-score Super Bowls, right? I mean, yesterday the margin of victory was eight points, which I guess is you know one score plus two, right? Mm -hmm. Getting the two-point conversion right. there at the end of the game. But I think what we've seen is once you get to the Super Bowl, that NFC teams have been consistently competitive with the Patriots. I, I took something different out of yesterday's game, though. What, what I took, Chris, was – sort of a more big picture view of this that the Patriots may finally and again it's if, if so it's taken 17 18 years but may finally have sort of gone in a position where they they're going to head towards a decline here because of some of the methods that they've used over the years as opposed to those methods extending their run and I take a look at their defense in particular yesterday and you know we can talk about the decision to not play Malcolm Butler which is you know was curious at the time and after some of the details have come out now is even more curious 
But I, I think beyond just the Malcolm Butler decision yesterday, I think what you saw on the Patriots team was that they didn't have a ton of playmakers, particularly in their front seven. You know, if you look at Chandler Jones, for instance, leading the NFL in sacks this year with 17, and this is a former Patriot. We've seen over the years that the Patriots have unloaded some of their, in particular, their veteran defenders when they've sort of been at peak value. They did it with Collins also. And I think at this point, it's starting to sort of come back and haunt them a little bit. And you add to that, you know, the the Brady specter, and certainly he did not look old yesterday, but we don't know how much longer he's going to be able to reform at this level. I think this 500 yards yesterday, I mean, that was pretty good. (laughs) I I feel like there are a few years left there, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Although, you know, even with the greatest of the greats. When it goes, it goes quickly. So I don't know. You know, we'll see. I mean, maybe he's got two or three more years at this level or close to this level. But but, you know, he also could be in a position where a year or two down the line here where it starts to go the other direction. Right. Peyton Manning went from 55 touchdowns to nine in two seasons. So. Right. I mean, and, and that and that was somewhat injury related. But but again, Brady, you know, ex- with the exception of the year he missed due to the knee has been you know reasonably healthy. But, you know, you don't know if he's going to suffer something that's going to hold him back going forward. But what, what I took from yesterday was. You know, this defense, which early this season really struggled, and then they were very good by some of the basic metrics over the next sort of 10, 12 games, but some of the deeper metrics were not great on them. And again, just the names that they have now are not of the caliber of some of the defensive that they've had in the past. And now again, Chris, they're going to go through another coordinator change. But what I took from yesterday was, can the Patriots get to another Super Bowl Absolutely. We know the AFC is kind of top heavy with them and the Steelers. And then we don't really know about a lot of the other teams that follow. But but I do think there may be an inflection point that we saw after yesterday where where this may be the best that it gets, particularly if there's any truth to any of the talk of dissension between Belichick, Kraft and Brady. Well, that certainly is much bigger in terms of, you know, what happens from if there is a choice to be made between those two rather than reconciliation. But I still think that even in the midst of what to me was a very flawed Patriots team, and I think they probably should have gone out to Jacksonville if Jacksonville has a quarterback that can make the plays that I'm talking about, they finish off New England. And I think that is one of the things Nick Foles in particular deserves a massive amount of credit for. The stones that he had to... I went back and and watched kind of like the major plays in the game. Facebook puts out these kind of 10-minute videos. And there's a fourth down and one that Nick Foles sidesteps a blitzer and throws the... It was like a two-yard pass to Ertz, but it converted on a fourth down. And I think if Nick Foles doesn't convert that fourth down and if they turn it over on downs, then the Patriots go and win the game. So I think there are plays that are inflection points in games with them, and I really do think that because of the nature of their dominance, they force the opposing team to be perfect. And I think Philadelphia was yesterday, at least on the offensive side of the football. Defensively, I think we saw the death march that the Patriots can be when they're trailing in a game and they need to get quick scores. They mm-hmm. went down and got it done. But I, I, I agree with you that their roster was hugely flawed. I just think that the Patriots are still this overwhelming force. And even if necessarily their talent isn't at the level where it should be or where it's been in previous years, their reputation, the pressure that they put on you by having Brady, by being able to score quickly, by having just this impenetrable formula to score points still is a massive sort of thing in the minds of opponents that puts them under pressure, and Philly somehow managed a way around it. 
And and that was an impressive performance by Philip, especially Foles. I mean, you start you start there, and, and some of the throws that he made, I thought Peterson called a great game beyond just the the fourth down call, which we can argue too whether or not that was an illegal formation. I know there's been some back or and forth on that. Or whether it was a good call, <laughs> or, or whether it was. I mean, right. I mean, if it doesn't work, we're, we're playing the result there. Yeah. But I think the rest of the game that was called was smart. Foles was in sort of some comfortable situations for him. So a lot of credit to the Philadelphia coaching staff and what they overcame. And it goes beyond Wentz. I mean, they didn't have their elite left tackle. They didn't have their middle linebacker. They didn't have their playmaking running back and had to go get Ajayi during the season. And so you lose three, you know, four key guys like that over the course of the season and still win the Super Bowl. And this is a team that was a seven-win team the year before and there were a lot of questions even early this season about the schedule that they were they were playing against you know they they had some they they were racking up wins but not against not against real good competition it didn't appear and you know all of that you know doesn't matter now because the eagles did a great job obviously during the postseason and to get you know a win win over a very very good minnesota defense to tear that defense apart and then to to stay with brady and be able to hold him off was extremely impressive. So much credit to the Eagles. They're they're definitely deserving champion. I just look at the, the Patriots and I say, look, they're not going to be bad next year, obviously. The, the AFC East in particular is not going to allow them to be bad. The Patriots are going to win the division again next year. They'll be in position to compete to go to the Super Bowl again. But I, I do think we've, we've hit a point where some of their moves, which, again, have been to sort of get ahead of things, get rid of a defensive player a year earlier rather than a year late. Some of the other decisions, again, this this benching of Butler in the Super Bowl, which seemed to be a little bit of hubris, at least from what we know so far on Belichick's part. Some of this stuff may be coming back to bite them a little bit, and, and I just wonder when that has an impact. But like you said, it's been 17 years, and the fact right. that there, there have been no sort of crumbling in that structure makes it even the more impressive achievement. Going to get to reason number two, because you mentioned the Eagles' growth. You wanted to talk about the idea of growth and decline as well, regression, when it comes to various teams around the league. Yeah, one of the things, Chris, that, that I learned, uh, one of the, the five reasons that this NFL season was instructive, was that just because a team looks like they're ready to take the next step does not mean that that's going to happen. And, and I, I take a look at a few teams here in particular and what happened to them this season. You take a look at the Oakland Raiders, 12 wins two years ago, touted as having you know a potentially elite quarterback in addition to having you know our you know, defensive player of the year from two years ago and one of the elite players in the game in, in Khalil Mack. It gave him a massive uh, extension. In, in terms of car, they gave him a huge extension. A, a huge extension. You, you appeared to have talent even though you were you know, making a change at the running back position. They bring in Marshawn Lynch. They had continuity in the coaching staff from the year before, but go from 12 wins down to six wins. Now, I know that a lot of this is going to be put on the fact that Carr was not healthy the entire season. They had to fill in with E.J. Manuel. But I look at something else here, and, and this plays into a lot of these teams that we talk about with not taking that next step or whether they do take the next step. If you looked a little deeper into the numbers of, for Oakland in 2016, they were not as impressive as the 12-4 and record. Um, if, you, if you just look at from, from a yardage perspective, but also point differential perspective, the Raiders were only plus 31 in 2016. So basically a, a plus two a game over the course of 16 games, even though they were eight games over 500. I, I think that was a little bit of a tell. And again, finished six and 10, you know, out of the money in, in a division that was not as good, the AFC West, as we anticipated it would be when the season started, when it looked like you had four potential playoff teams out of that division. So Oakland is one team that I wanted to mention. The, another one is Tampa. 
nine wins in 2016, but again, a, ne- a negative point differential, minus 15. So th- that spoke to some underlying problems there. And, and they go from nine wins down to five wins, even though they had some, you know, some high-profile additions in the offseason, including Deshaun Jackson. Now, they offensively, they were about the same by most metrics as they were the year before, but defensively took a step back. And so that was another team. And, and then you mentioned, uh, you know, we can talk about Dallas and the Giants, and there were circumstances that played into both of those. But, but again, in 2016, and I know we can talk about all the receiver injuries and all the other injuries they had in 2017, but in 2016, Chris, they were just plus 26 with 11 wins. And, and the other one is, is the Dolphins. Um, yep. and, and a lot of that can be blamed on the Tannehill situation. But another one where point differential plays into this. 10 wins in 2016, but they were minus 17 on the season. So a lot of close games that they won the year before against some subpar competition. And then you look at this year, six wins, minus 112 on the season, which actually, if you look at that, should have been closer. They should have been closer to four and 12. So I think you look at those teams, you know, one of the things that was learned this year is that just because a team looks like they're going to take that next step, it does not necessarily mean it. And what we saw, and I know you want to touch on this a little, is that some teams that were behind them in the pecking order, teams like the Rams, teams like the Eagles, the, the, the Jags, the Vikings, all passed all of those teams this year, uh, even though those teams, you know, looked poised with their rosters to be able to to compete for a championship potentially. Yeah, and when you look at from the the Los Angeles Rams' point of view, they were probably. I mean, obviously Jacksonville has finished with one of the six worst records in the league for six straight years. I saw that stat from Field Yates. But I felt like the Rams were even more destitute because they relocated to this stadium that is cavernous. They tried to move into this bigger market and make a splash, and nobody cared. And you have one of the most dire playing styles in the league, too. They had Nick Foles. Now, they wasn't in Los Angeles when they were in St. Louis. They had Nick Foles, and... He looked terrible for them. An unplayable quarterback. I thought his career was over. And you look at them starting last year with Keenum. And then Goff comes in. And Goff looked like one of the worst number one overall picks ever. Looked destined to be a bust. And yet... They turn it around, and not just turn it around, but turn it around by being the most stylistic team in the league, scoring in the top three in the league in points, having these massive blowout victories and being fun in the process. You can turn it around in a year, and I think it's indicative of two things. Number one, that it is just that easy if you sort of start to build quality roster. Uh, to me, the roster is where it starts. Then you have coaching, because I, I really think that the change in coach makes a massive difference between F- Fisher and McVay. I'm kind of starting to change my opinion a little bit on coaching, because you see the difference between Doug Peterson being involved with the Eagles compared to Chip Kelly. You see the change from McVay and Jeff Fisher, so I think the coaching plays a role. And then, kind of not really overreacting to one season's worth of quarterback play. And I think that goes back to the example on the sort of negative end that you mentioned. So you look at what happened with some of those teams, with Prescott with Derek Carr, with the guys that ended up declining, I think perhaps we overreacted to the play that they put together the year before and said, okay, they're going to kick on from there. Perhaps it's not just you know one year's worth of performance that you do this analysis on, and I think that pretends as it relates to the future with Garoppolo and how well he played this year. That may not necessarily be the, the, the same next year, although obviously it would be hard to doubt it. Houston, Mm-hmm. In terms of the performance of Watson, I know that the people that really study the play-in, play-out stuff didn't like some of the decisions that he was making and some of his uh, poor accuracy on throws. So perhaps he just kind of caught the league by surprise, and when he comes back from this injury, he won't quite be the same player. I think there are some examples of guys who I think we overreact to, 
and don't look at, as you mentioned, the point differential, some of the underlying circumstances and say, well, they're going to keep on being this good and maybe, you know, or, or on the negative end, they'll keep being this bad. And I just think that that's not necessarily going to hold up year to year. Yeah, and I think it applies on a team basis, but also, as you mentioned, on an individual basis. And, and again, there is an expectation with Watson that he's going to just sort of pick up where he left off last season. And, and again, that's not necessarily the case. And I think you look at some of the other teams that you would say are sort of poised to take the next step. San Francisco is, is a good example because of the way the way that they closed. But I, I think another one you know you look at is, is Buffalo with, with the nine wins this year, but they were minus 57. So, you know, they won a lot of tight games. So if those games start to go the other direction, that could be a two or three game swing right there. So I, I do think, you know, again, when you look at, at some of these teams, you can't just say, well, this, you know, you look like you were making a run. Like, for instance, I go back to the, the Dolphins with with Nick Saban's team in 2005 and his first team. You know, they started three and seven. They won six straight games to finish the season. And anybody who was upset about their draft position, you know, kind of wrote it off and said, well, you know, but you're showing that you're, you're getting Saban's system. This group's going to be really good next year. And when we know what happened, right, like they tried to make a change at the quarterback position, they bring in Culpepper instead of Breeze, and that backfires. And, and that team, I, I believe, ended up going 6-10, and 10, and Nick was out the door. You know, with about three weeks left, he was ready to leave. So you can't just extrapolate and say, you know, this team looks good in this season. They're going to be really good the next year. I, I think it's really hard to do that, and I think, again, you have to look at uh, some of the underlying factors. One of the major factors, I know you wanted to hit on this, is what goes on at the quarterback position. And again, that's one of the reasons that this season was interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think when you look at what happens yesterday with Nick Foles winning the Super Bowl. Now, obviously, if you kind of boil it down to just quarterback v. quarterback, you know, Brady losing to Foles is fairly humiliating in some respects because I think a lot of people viewed him as a backup. But Obviously, with the performance that Foles turns in, you have to start asking, well, is it actually the quarterback? And sort of the larger point for me here is, is quarterback the be-all, end-all? I think in an era when Aaron Rodgers, for example, was really at his peak. I I would still say he's at his peak, but with enough injuries, it it might start to fall off a little bit. But I just think that when, when Aaron Rodgers was at his peak, and I think we were really in a golden age of quarterbacking, we don't realize it now, but I'd say probably 2010, 2011 was the golden age of quarterbacking in the NFL with kind of Tony Romo being considered, ah, I don't know if he's good enough. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I mean, Tony Romo now is one of the six best quarterbacks in the league. But when you look at the the way that the Eagles engineered offense, and not just offense, high-quality offense in that game yesterday, it's Jay Ajayi not being touched for three yards before he can start taking off into the secondary. It's Nick Foles never even have anybody close to him. And I think when you look at the quality of their line play, you look at the quality of their defense, the quality of their roster, and I understand that... Foles, Bortles, Keenum making the, the, the final four in the NFL is something of an outlier. But I also think it, it really just sort of understate, this isn't just about quarterback. This isn't, okay, you know, if you're trying to pick who's going to win the game, which team has the better quarterback, they're going to win. I think this was the year where we kind of saw, well, there's a way to engineer 
quality outside of just having the better quarterback. And I think that roster depth, that roster quality to where you're playing a complete game with a complete system and a complete set of players, I think makes the real difference. Well, I, I think it, it. we did see some of that this year. And, and obviously some very good defensives carried some, some weak offenses also and some weak quarterback play. And Jacksonville's a prime example of that where, where you could have you know a 10-6 and six record and a point differential of plus 149, even you know with Blake Bortles being as inconsistent as he was, and they still managed to put up 417 points this year. Now, I would say something else, though. I do think that what we saw this year was that maybe we put too much emphasis on the starting quarterback at times and not without accounting for the quarterback position for a particular team and the need to have more than one guy who can start for you. And I think you look at some of the teams around the league, I think that played in. You mentioned Houston. You know, earlier in the pod, they fell apart without Deshaun Watson. You know, however, however you may want to nitpick Watson's play, they didn't have an NFL quality backup on that team. You know, Tom Savage did not prove to be that, and so it's a funny team, because Bill O'Brien thought he was an NFL quality starter at the start of the it, season, and even started him in the first game. But yeah. but when you go from three and four to four and twelve, that thing bottomed out pretty quickly. You know, I, I thought Jacoby Brissett played pretty well at times for Indianapolis, but again, a four and twelve season. For Indianapolis, they only scored 263 points on the season. So, so scoring about you know was, was 17, 18 p- points a game. So, so that was one place. You know, another place that we saw it where you know they had to go get a guy on the eve of, of the season basically because they didn't have Andrew Luck available. So, I, I think what we saw was you know and and why the Patriots were so reluctant to trade Garoppolo beyond just the fact that he'd be Brady's successor. He was also an insurance policy in in case Brady went out with an injury. And I think what this year showed was it's very difficult to find one quarterback. I, I know, and it's more difficult to find two, you know, the teams that didn't have, you know, another option at that position really struggled. Whereas you look at what Minnesota did, you know, where they, they ultimately turned to their third guy in case Keenum, and not only does the team keep winning behind a good defense, but he performed at a high level. But if I was to flip that argument on its head, if I had said to you before the year, is Case Keenum someone you would consider a quality NFL backup even? I'm not sure most people would have said yes. I, I don't think NFL talent evaluators would have said yes, given the fact that Case Keenum was slated to be on Minnesota's practice squad. And so I think that kind of is my point, which is I, Jacoby Brissett, I think, would be a more than capable backup for Minnesota for Jacksonville, for Philadelphia. I think Jacoby Brissett could have just as easily done the same things that we saw Nick Foles did, uh, do yesterday. And I really do think it is dependent on what's around them. You look at Minnesota, they had Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen and had you know Kyle Rudolph and a decent running game, even after Dalvin Cook got hurt, uh, and, a, and a terrific defense as well. So I, I do think that, yes, you can say, well, have a quality backup, but I think for the most part, most quarterbacks... In the NFL, outside of the Rodgers, the Breeze, the Brady, rely on the people around them. And the people around them make or break them, not the quarterback themselves. And so I think when you look at what Foles did, what Keenum did, I think they owe a ton to their teammates and to their coaching. And that that always matters. I just think you mentioned Green Bay. And and look, nobody's going to be Aaron Rodgers, right? I mean, we're not expecting that. You know, we saw a couple years ago with Flynn stepping in and the numbers that he put up. You know, and Brett Hundley didn't have any experience as a starter, so I get it. But if you look at Hundley's struggles with the same person there, right? And with with supposedly, and we can argue about whether Mike McCarthy is overrated or not, but with supposedly a, a, a team that understands 
quarterback play, right? And it was a front office that had always drafted additional quarterbacks, et cetera. But Hunley's struggles, particularly early in his time taking over for Rodgers, completely sunk that team. And I'm not saying that Hunley can't be a good backup in the NFL. I I don't know if he can be a starter someday. But I I think we saw this, and I understand your Keenum point, which is that we wouldn't have said before the year that he was going to be a quality backup let alone a quality starter but the reality is he was right right i mean he he did look to me like a product of their system that he was performing at a high level he was taking some chances making plays down the field and i you know again adam thielen is an undrafted guy right like they we're not with a you know a huge pedigree and you know they developed this incredible connection where Thielen ends up finishing in the top five in, in a lot of receiving categories so I think it's it's a little bit of both you don't always know that you have the right backup and we can say before the year this guy will be or this guy won't be and we may be wrong about it but I do think what we saw this year was and I think this may play into Philadelphia's decision when they go forward with Foles, is that you really need two guys. I mean, we've seen disaster quarterbacks in Miami when they've taken over. I mean, we saw Ray Lucas commit six turnovers, you know, in, in yeah. his first first start. Uh, right. I, okay, we've seen a lot of that stuff. Uh, we've seen, you know, the likes of Tyler Thigpen, et cetera. I didn't think so that Moore this was going to be a complete disaster. Well, and that's the point, right? Because the Dolphins have kept Matt Moore around for years, apparently without any faith in him to play like they just he's he's a good guy so they've kept him because he's been a safe guy to keep like he doesn't he you're not going to have a huge quarterback controversy when Matt Moore's your number two and I, I think teams have to get beyond that and say well, you have to upgrade that position particularly at the number two spot at that position as much as you possibly can even if it leads to these other side effects And you mentioned earlier a quarterback that was taken out of the booth to replace the Dolphins quarterback, that being Jay Cutler, who's slated to be on Fox, uh, replacing Ryan Tannehill. You wanted to get to a quarterback that stayed in the booth. Yeah, five reasons uh, Five reasons that this NFL season was sort of enlightening for me. Uh, I'll come up with number four here is Tony Romo was, to me, a revelation in the booth this year. I have really not heard anyone like him do NFL games before. And I know he's polarizing to a certain degree. Like, there's not a lot of in-between on him. If you check, you do a Tony Romo search on Twitter and the games he's calling, you will basically find back-to-back tweets. He's the best I've ever heard, and then the next one will be, he's making my ears bleed, will he please stop talking? And and this, this happens during every game that Tony Romo's calling. But count me in the camp that loved him. I, I thought he was terrific. And, and I, I think what it did for me, and not just him calling plays before they happen, although it was ridiculous how good he was at that, but just sort of explaining the game in very clear terms and having fun with the game. And I think one of the problems that football has had, the NFL has had in particular, intentionally the people who are sort of guardians of the game try to make it not fun, right? Like for years, the no celebrations, all of the things that go along with this, you know, and not, not sort of promote personalities and Romo enjoys the job like it seemed to be having a blast all the time when he was doing it and he was also educating and what it did for me was when I listened to the other analysts I got nothing out of them anymore like right. I didn't realize I didn't, how dry it was I, yeah I, like I didn't realize how little Troy Aikman actually says like <laughs> he's, like he doesn't I mean this is the number one guy on a network and listening to his games this year, I never learned a single thing. Like, it's all platitudes and explaining to you after the fact some of what happened, not all of what happened. Collinsworth, I, I thought, I, I didn't really add a lot yesterday other than 
I, he seemed to not understand what a catch was, and we're going to touch on that a little bit. I think he just muddied the waters there yesterday with some of the commentary that he made. And I was never a Gruden fan. I, I just I, everybody Gruden to me suffered from some of what what bothered me a little bit about Jeff Van Gundy. Although I think that Van Gundy's gotten away from this a little bit, but Gruden seemed to be always defending every coach, every coach's decision. In addition to for Gruden, every player was the greatest that he'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, so so I mean, you look at the top four announcers for the for the various networks. To me, the only one that that I found that added anything to a particular broadcast was Romo and and that to me that's a uh, that was a big story this NFL season like because you had him calling the most important game on CBS on a weekly basis and and I you know he added some some color to it some flavor to it but also uh, I thought really educated and, and talked about the game in a different way and and to me he was sort of one of the MVPs of this NFL season yeah, I've always found curious the way that people receive announcers because it's something that I've done and that I, I want to continue doing. So I, 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 social media reaction to commentators is always interesting to me. And I found really interesting as well the way that people were reacting to Collinsworth yesterday where I think it really comes down to if an announcer wants to stand out in any way that is not the norm, I think that's when people start to have reactions, right? So when Gus Johnson first starts yelling calls during college basketball games, there are people like, this is an affront to broadcasting, <laughs> and this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen, like you said. And I think that's what Romo is, right? He stands out from the second he starts because he doesn't have any polish, he doesn't have any experience, and he's already kind of a divisive figure as the quarterback of the Cowboys. And so we, I remember he, he started with a Titans-Raiders game that was uh, sort of the early afternoon game, and I, he, he immediately starts calling out the plays, and immediately it's, oh, this is incredible, he's no, he's no Stradamus, and I, I don't need this information, this is too much, and you're, you're teaching me too much. I, I just, I, I've always found that <laughs> curious, but I, I totally agree with you. I think Romo was absolutely fantastic this year. And bringing that level of enthusiasm, like you said, to a league that so desperately needs it, that so desperately needs someone to be fired up about football. You don't see people that are really that fired up about football anymore because of all the negative stories. Yep. I just don't think you see it. No, you don't. And and the call at the end of the Super Bowl was, I mean, it was like a preseason game. Yeah. Like I, I, I and, and that's why you're getting all this. You know, this criticism today, like did did Michaels and Collinsworth actually have have money on the Patriots or something, which is a ridiculous notion. (laughs) But but there was no enthusiasm to it. I mean, they were more concerned about hyping. This is us at at the end of that game. And and this you're talking about, you know, not just, you know, the Patriots losing, which was obviously a big story. But but also, you know, a franchise that that is a a popular NFL franchise, uh, you know, with very passionate fans that had never won. I mean, that's a huge Story. I mean, I, you know, I mean, again, think to sort of the passion, and I go, I know it goes back longer, but think of the passion and enthusiasm that was shown when the Cubs won, and then you compare it to yesterday with the Eagles, and it was just like, okay, you know, now somebody's going to die on this is us. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand what they were doing at the end of that broadcast. There was no enthusiasm at all to that call. I mean, Michael's just kept saying how what a great game it was. That particular duo to me seemed grumpy. The whole year. I mean, Michaels didn't like the, uh, you know, he, he didn't like the kneeling and he, and he, you know, he made a point of that. And, and, and obviously, you know, we, we don't want to get into a whole political discussion on that. But but that was I mean, his preference on that was was clearly known. And then, as you mentioned, the NFL's dealing with all of these other stories, and you know, including head injuries and, and all the other things that 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 go on with that league. And and you're right. I, there, there's just not enough 
enthusiasm for the game that's shown, and that was the difference with Romo. It's almost like Romo had never played before. Like he was seeing this game for the first time. He just yeah. had to be really good at protecting at predicting plays, and and I thought that was refreshing. I, and, I, I just love that he dared to be different. And, that, yep. and that's something you just don't see enough in broadcasting. He, he dared to be different. And obviously it was just his own personality. I don't think he was trying at anything. But, and that, for me, is something that I think draws a lot of, you know, uh, you, you mentioned the polarizing nature of it. There's a fine line between, you know, oh, I really like this information and you're talking down to me. And that's what I think a lot of people feel with Collinsworth, a criticism I don't understand. Because when I watch things, I, I like watching, you know, NFL matchup on Sunday morning because Lewis Riddick is going to run through mm-hmm. the film and show me this Three technique D tackle. I don't even know if I'm if that, there even is such a thing as a three technique D tackle. But like all like sort of explaining me to me how little I know about football. And and yet I think when people try and do that, people always receive it as you're talking down to me, even though they are well within their right to talk down to us. Because <laughs> in in comparison to how football coaches and players, the knowledge that they have, they can talk down to us. So I, I just think people don't like that. I love it, and, and, I, and I'm here for more of it, and I can't wait until CBS gets their next Super Bowl so I actually hear him on this big occasion, although obviously he's on the AFC Championship game, but uh, having this, this spotlight in particular, I'm really excited for when Romo gets it. Yep. All right, now let's get to your, uh, let's get to your fifth reason. The NFL's drop in interest was not stemmed this year. That tide was not stemmed, and so you saw yet another percentage decrease. We saw a percentage decrease in ratings when it came to the Super Bowl. It was down down about 3%. I saw there was comparisons between what the Super Bowl was three years ago and it was last on NBC, which was the Seahawks-Patriots game that had 114 million viewers. Yesterday's had 103. Now, understanding that relatively, 103 million viewers is still by far the most amount of people that will watch anything on television uh, this year. But... It is indicative of almost at every mile marker, ratings continue to be down. Now, we mentioned we don't want to get into the politics. The politics does play something into it. I think actually on both ends of the argument, I think there are people uh, you saw. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Cardi B, the artist, said that she was offered a role in the Super Bowl halftime show, but turned it down until Colin Kaepernick comes back in the league. I do think there are people on that side of it as well that have stopped watching football. But I think there are just a multitude of reasons why interest in the league has gone down, and we can kind of run through them very quickly. Obviously, the political stuff is the most high-profile one. The change in the way that young people consume sports, the change in the way that young people feel about football, by the way, because I think now that you're starting to see the decline in participation, you're starting to see in terms of the metrics that are being done, the polling that's being done, young people just aren't as into football as they used to be, and that is concerning for the NFL. And I think the, the, the way that the tech is working now, the number of games that are on television, sometimes you're being asked in terms of standalone windows to watch six games in a week. That's an insane amount of football to put on television. And I just think between all of the negative PR that they're getting and all these other external factors, we're kind of heading towards an interesting era in terms of what the growth or decline narrative is going to be surrounding this league. Yeah, and I think it's been too simplistic to to make it about the kneeling. And and I understand that there is a percentage of the population that did decide that they're not going to watch. And so I did think it it plays into it somewhat. I think, again, there's a smaller population that sort of takes the other side of that. And it's basically, you know, because of the way that Kaepernick was treated by the NFL, decides not. Again, I think that's a small percentage. Uh, 
but but I think I think it exists to a certain degree. But but I really think I really think the bigger issue is that we've started to see you know some of this sort of trickled out in terms of the negative publicity that the game itself has gotten over recent years. And and I you know w- starting with the way that the NFL handled you know the concussion crisis, the feeling about it you know in terms of the way that parents view it with youth leagues, I, I think some of that has started to seep in. And I also think that the quality of the game is not at the level that it was before. And I know that makes you, you know, you sound like an old man when you say that, but, but I do think that plays into it. And, and I, I think we saw this year start with the quarterback position. I, I think a lot of pedestrian play at that position, not a whole bunch of, you know, you had Wentz and you had Watson, but not, a, not a lot of sort of, of young, young stars that people are sort of uh, gravitating towards at this point. I, I also think that the growth at the NBA scene in a number of areas in terms of making their players more visible than the players in other leagues. And they have an advantage because they don't have helmets and all the rest, but, but NBA but players it didn't used to of, be the case that this has been the case for 40 years. And now right. you've seen these, the NBA starting to turn. Yeah, the NBA is starting to turn and I, I think you know you look at the NBA they they mastered social media before the NFL did I think in a much bigger way than the NFL did. I mean, think about uh, the biggest stars in the NBA. I mean, all have a big social media presence, right? Like LeBron has a big social media presence. Like LeBron's going to tweet out a photo of Arthur when he's not happy. Like you you're going <laughs> to you're going to see that. There's going to be that controversy, right? right. Like like, I mean, Joel Embiid, right? I mean, one of the rising stars in the NBA yeah. has a huge social media presence. And it's not just a presence, but he's controversial right. on there. Willing he's to funny stick on his there. face in the buzzsaw. Right. Willing I mean, to be the narrative. And you have that with a lot of NBA players. Now, now think of the NFL quarterbacks, right? The highest profile players in the NFL are the quarterbacks. Right. Who has a social media presence? They're sort of coached to be bland, and that's not the case in the NBA. So I, I think in the NFL, the kind of the idea has been you're rooting for the team, right? In the NBA, you're rooting for the individual who happens mm-hmm. to be part of a team. And I think now when you have some of these other headlines that come in, whether it's the concussions, whether it's the kneeling, uh, then you add in you know, people who are, who are you know, going cutting the cord too, so that affects ratings. All of those things together – and I do think that's led to slippage. And then it's the thing, Chris, that Mark Cuban said, which you mentioned, which is that the oversaturation of the league was eventually going to be a problem for, for the NFL, which is interesting because the NBA is oversaturated now, too. But the NFL, I mean, that Thursday night package has pretty much been a disaster. Like the games are invariably bad. Like you get you except, get except for the cash that they're getting from the networks. Right. Well, that's it. Right. I mean, that's that's what they get. But the games, I mean, what were there two, maybe three competitive games this year? Uh, So you're talking about people making a commitment on Thursday night in addition to Sunday and then Sunday night, which is something that, you know, people have gotten used to the Sunday night game. But that's a relatively recent ad in addition to the Monday night game. It's just it's a lot of content. I think it's a lot of overkill. And if your team is not compelling, and the personalities on the team are not compelling, then that is going to lead to a bit of a drop in terms of overall attendance and overall popularity. So did the kneeling play into it? Yeah, for some people it it did. And and, and the NFL, as we've talked about, tends to be a more – its fan base is more conservative – than the NBA. And so, you know, things that you could get away with in the NBA, you can't get away with in the NFL. And I think we've seen that play out a little bit. Yeah. And I think to me, the two biggest things that you kind of draw from it are one, particularly when you compare it to the NBA, I think a lot of young people 
like the NBA in part because it's an all-encompassing experience, right? So you have the games, but sometimes the games are secondary to the trades that get made. Even even in Super Bowl week, one of the biggest news stories that broke through, even with even amid Super Bowl coverage, was a trade uh, of from Los Angeles Blake Griffin going to Detroit. There's always player movement. There's always a narrative. There are all these players that are stars, and I do think that one of the biggest things of concern, matters of concern for the NFL right now is kind of like that they're heading towards baseball because at least as it relates to stars because if I said to you going into the game and even leaving the game who was the star of the Philadelphia Eagles can't be Nick Foles can it there aren't any people that even after a game that 103 million people watched that was one of the greatest Super Bowls ever played is a player that stands out as his personality who did something either before or after the game that really broke through. And I really think there just aren't players who are willing to stick their face in it, willing to go against the culture of the sport. And I do think this is a culture problem more than it is sort of the the individuals they're in. I think the individuals like Odell Beckham want to demonstrate their personality. I And it's kind of funny because we talk about the commercials a lot as, as it relates to the Super Bowl. The NFL won the commercial battle yesterday with that mm-hmm. Eli Manning, Odell Beckham thing. And I think those kinds of ideas are perfect in terms of creating the social media and creating that positive feeling. Oh, wow, look at these guys having fun. They did a a dirty dance uh, was it dirty dancing uh, a, yep. a re- remake and and kind of having fun with that and I was kind of going through the mentions you know waiting to see oh this is stupid oh this is bad but everyone seemed to enjoy it so I think those kinds of things that make them look like they're having fun or that they have some personality are brilliant and they really need to get back to that because I, I really do think that there are whole teams that have people that you know nothing about or that and then that you don't care about frankly and that's why I think th- and that dovetails into the whole Thursday night problem where you're like ugh do I have to watch Titans and Jags tonight? Right, like, because right. you just don't care about anything or anybody that's happening unless you're gambling, or you play fantasy. So we'll see. Otherwise, uh, you know, in it, you know, a lot of interesting things this season, and we will get to more of them over the course of uh, of the off season. We'll touch on topics as free agency starts as we head towards the NFL draft. Obviously, we'll be doing a lot more of a Dolphins focus. Uh, we didn't focus much on the Dolphins in this pod because, because honestly, this was uh, and we we devoted another couple of episodes of the Dolphins recently but this was such a forgettable season yeah. but we will uh, we'll get to some other topics this week uh, one thing we do want you to do if you find us on our various platforms uh, you know Chris is at uh, Chris Winningham on Twitter I'm at Ethan J Skolnick uh, you can find us both on Instagram also um, you can find us uh, this podcast on on Stitcher on Apple on uh, Apple iTunes as well as Google Play but definitely make suggestions for future topics we're trying to churn out two or three of these a week we don't want the well to run dry here too soon so if you have something that you uh, want us to delve into a little bit we would appreciate it and we will talk to you soon Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.